Assalamu alaikum. Hello, I'm Khalil Alika. And I'm Zahir Parker. And welcome to AccidentalMuslims.com. So AccidentalMuslims.com is a, a movement, a platform where we showcase present and future leaders to help us live with purpose. And we believe that everybody has a story to tell. This podcast hopes to add value. So welcome and enjoy. Assalamu alaikum, I'm Nadia Musaji and you are listening to AccidentalMuslims.com I'm so glad after months, okay, months, weeks of getting hold of you because you're traveling all over the world Happy to for you to be here No, happy to be here, thanks for the invitation Finally, and Zahir, co-host Thank you Khalil, um, now it's great to be back, we've been away for a couple of weeks uh, We've got a, a great guest you know i looked through a i trolled the website a couple of times i must just be honest (laughs) Um, and uh, i'm in awe i must just be honest and i hope the listeners are going to be inspired by our guest today in fact i i think they will be so yeah i'm just great to be back okay nadia let's start by maybe you describing yourself in in three words three words so short i talk a lot (laughs) so i would say um Tenacious, um, funny. I think I'm very funny, and um, compassionate. Funny. Yes. I didn't know that. I want to ask you. So you, there's so many things you do. How do you find that balance between you know you're on the board of Pegasus, you're on the World Economic Forum, got a restaurant, is uh, you're an entrepreneur, you started your NGO. How do you? So the balance is actually more about what is important to you. Um, So everybody talks about work-life balance. It's a myth. Um, For me, it's what do I prioritize? Um, What do I find fun and exciting and where I can make the biggest difference in the world? Um, And that's how I choose the things that I get involved with. And I make time for it. So it could be like 20 things. Yeah, it could be, tw- it could be 200 things also. <laughs> um, I've, I'm also like a, a squirrel, you know. So if you've ever seen a squirrel in the park, right, like we'll be focused on one thing, but then it gets distracted by something shiny and then it moves on and it moves on very quickly. Mm-hmm. So um, I do have some squirrel <laughs> habits. Yeah, so it's funny you said squirrel. I, I know Elizabeth Graham, she wrote E Play Love. Yes. And she says, don't follow your passion, follow your curiosity. Yeah. And I think that's that's what you do. That's potentially right. Yeah. <laughs> Said, I know you. You just you just focusing on your on your low on your low stuff, and now the health, the hiking kind of thing. Um, yeah. So, what do you think? You said you're funny. Can you tell us a joke? <laughs> <laughs> just, it comes off as like humorous. Like people don't expect that from me. Also, because I think the thing is, is the the, the perception is of Muslim woman. I wear a scarf, and I, you know, I and I I, I I dress in a particular way. So everybody just assumes I'm going to be really quiet and conservative. And then I come out, and I'm, I've got kind of a witty sense mm-hmm. of humor. And then they don't expect that um, because they've in their mind a Muslim woman is quiet and reserved and conservative. And I'm done of those things. <laughs> That's why I, I, I picked up on funny because uh, it's interesting you described yourself as funny. I like funny people. I like to be funny myself. <laughs> but uh, uh, with varying successes. Um, and, and it's for that exact same reason that you mentioned that you're a Muslim woman and there's a stereotypical um, picture or point of view of a Muslim woman. And I personally believe uh, being funny or, or just being humorous 
is actually a nice way to, to network and start that conversation with people. It's usually with a, a soft joke maybe that you start, I mean, uh, meet a random stranger and you make a slight joke about whatever you see. And that's where you relationships start to be built or you start to build relationships. Do you find that useful or is it not really how you start networking with people? No, I do. I mean, I, um, I'm actually, I, I really just network around food. Um, <laughs> I'm going to be honest. <laughs> so if you're ever looking for me, I'm really by the food table. <laughs> it's a great conversation starter. Um, but, um, and then it is just about who I am, right? I mean, I don't take life very seriously because, okay. um, you know, we, none of us are going to get out of it alive anyway. So <laughs> we may as well just make so, the most of it. No, 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 that's fantastic. I mean, Khalil's talking about uh, me being in law and me being starting to get back into the hiking and the fitness and that. But the essence of everything is just to do your best at whatever you're doing. Like that squirrel you were describing mm-hmm. or yourself who you were describing. Do something, but... Do it to your best. Uh, is that a motto that you've picked up or is just born with what you say? So it's weird because one of my mottos have always has always been like always exceed expectations, right? Um, and I still remember it when I had a, a Yahoo email account. I've moved on to Gmail, so stop, stop judging me. But um, it was at the bottom it said always exceed expectations and it was something that I lived by and I still do. Um, and the nice thing sometimes is being a, a Muslim woman, people just underestimate you. So you're going to wow them anyway. Mm. Um, and they so wow that they're just like, oh, my God, I can't believe that this person does all of this stuff. But then she looks like this and sometimes it just doesn't Fits. connect for <laughs> them. Uh, it's a bit of an anomaly for some uh, people. But that's more about preconceived conceptions or about Muslim women or Muslims in general, I think. I think there's some good work being done by young comedians in South Africa. Um, Yasin Barnes is one yes. of them. I mean, we all know Riyad Musa. About trying to uh, change that. Uh, I know that's particularly with com- comedy and, and just perceptions. But uh, how do you, when you start, uh, say, in a business relation with, with, uh, with a prospective client, um, how is that first conversation? Uh, how do you break that ice, really, besides your humor? And that, uh, or rather, how do you win their trust? Maybe that's, that's what I can get to. And I think maybe the thing is, is that um, I'm an engineer. And so usually when I say that to people, they just, it's, they're taken aback because, again, they're just not expecting it. Um, and I come to, I've got a, I think I've got a really great emotional intelligence to be able to read people. So when I go into a business relationship, for example, I remember the first time I was um, going to a networking event and I was looking for business and I scanned who was in the room and I said, you, whenever you go to these networking events, you've got to have a hit list. And I know for a Muslim person, it's, you know, you shouldn't be saying that out loud. Um, But I I have a hit list of people that I really want to meet. And I may, I I casually went over to the guy, and the guy at the time was the head of HR for Vodacom. Um, So I did my homework beforehand. um, And I went up to him and he was at the food table, and so we, we stuck up a conversation about food, and then he said, no, he's from Vodacom, and I said, oh, no, that's really fantastic. And I was like, do you guys struggle with getting more women engineers? And he's like, yeah, no, it's such a big problem. And then I said, you know what, I can help you. Um, here's my business card. I was 20 at the time, mm-hmm. and I would printed my business cards at home on my printer, <laughs> right? Um, and so, yeah, I, was, I took myself seriously, right? I'd, I'd committed. I, here was this person who was so senior. You know, everybody was just trying to, you know, suck up to this guy. And yeah, I was offering him something, a conversation. 
And I didn't pitch anything to him then. I said, let our people get in touch. You know, get your people to contact my people. My people was just me at the time. But, you know, it was about, you know, sometimes you had to play big, um, act a particular part, and then and then just wow them. And when I got into, you know, a conversation with him, I made sure that when we finally got a contract with them, we delivered. And we delivered at 150% so that we would have continuation of work. It's mm-hmm. awesome. amazing. I remember when when you started Moming, that was in 2006, and um, you had your conference in parallel with our conference, the MSA, the RIS, and Discover Islam. Yes. And if you look at the two projects we we are in, in terms of the RIS and, and, and Islam, Discover Islam, where that is and where you are now, um, You've been all over. I mean, not only in South Africa, but you've been. You started the the chapters in other countries and, yeah. and cities as well. What what tips would you give um, people starting wanting to start an NPO, even starting a business? I would say start a business before you start an NPO. Rather look at um, how you can make money out of it to make it sustainable. So we pivoted our business. Um, a few years ago, um, and we're now in four countries, South Africa, Kenya, Mexico, and Brazil, um, and we're going to be launching in six countries next year, inshallah. And, you know, the the thing is, is that you've got to be passionate about what you're doing, you've got to be compelling, and you've got to deliver. Um, And I think the the sometimes we, you know, people start with great ideas, um, but then we don't finish it. Um, and I think that's the thing is, is that there's sometimes where your faith is going to be tested um, when literally blood, sweat and tears, you're at your low point, right? And that's when you've kind of really have to pull yourself up. Um, and I'm really lucky that I've got an amazing business partner. Yeah. Um, not everybody has that. And I think when you're two people, you know, it's uh, being an entrepreneur is a lonely thing um, and it can break you. Um, but there's two of us, so we share the load. We support each other. Um, and I think that's the another story of, the, you know, there's often a story about how women don't support each other. We're probably the complete opposite. I, if My husband knows she's my soulmate. Mm. She completes me. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and, and we have that kind of relationship. In fact, you know, um, I always credit Hema with, you know, the success of the organization is that we complement each other so well. Yeah. Um, and we're completely interchangeable. Maybe can you just share with the listeners, what's the ethos of women? Mm-hmm. So women was started um, to be able to develop women and girls in the engineering industry. Um, and we started this 10 years ago, um, just because engineering is seen as something that, you know, is very masculine that the boys do that girls will not be good at, which in fact is absolute rubbish, <laughs> frankly. Um and what we were doing was we started out on this kind of mission to revolutionize the face of engineering, to showcase positive role models, which were women and girls that were coming from all over the world, um, and that anybody could be an engineer, and that engineering was really not that difficult. And there's this narrative about engineering that, oh, you've got to be good at maths and science, um, or you've got to love maths and science. And I always say this, I say, you know, I love cupcakes, I love a good mutton curry, but I really don't love maths and science, you know. And so um, it's about changing that, um, that narrative and saying that actually engineering is very accessible, anybody can do it. I mean, it's an applied science, so you've got to work hard at it, but anything worth having is really, you've got to work hard for it, nothing comes easy. And 
So we set out on this mission 10 years ago, and, and since then... We've got essentially three core programs, a girl program that inspires high school girls to study engineering. That program is five years old, and our first cohort graduated as engineers about two years ago. Um, so it was, you know, it really works to just essentially give mentors role models, and the kids play games, and they learn about engineering in a fun way. They learn about maths and science in a fun way, um, not kind of this boring way that, that they teach kids now. Um, and then we've got an innovation program for university students. It's a big challenge to try and get more women-owned businesses in the engineering industry. And then we do a lot of like leadership development for women engineers in the industry as well. Well, that's quite a, quite, a, quite. You're covering all your sectors over there, all, yeah. all your aspects, I, especially like the aspect of bringing the fun to the kids, uh, because uh, how are we going to inspire them to? I mean, if they're going to be stuck in a job, uh, it might be mundane. So mm-hmm. you're trying to break that sort of conception, I'm assuming, uh, by providing them with a fun alternative um, stepping stone into engineering, I'm mm-hmm. assuming. Yes, and I mean, the and, and I'll give you an example. One of the projects we do, which I love, is uh, these girls get into teams and they build a car powered by a balloon made out of rubbish, right? Mm. Um, and you'd think, oh, no, but boys like cars. You would be surprised. So these girls become very competitive. They have to race the car. There's a prize at the end. And then, they, you know, it's... They're so loud, and it's amazing to see how they're all trying to kind of build the best car possible. Um, And uh, we work with high school students, and I took my my two-year-old niece um, to one of these programs, these bold programs, and she had a fantastic time. Um, And we give these girls pink hard hats, bright pink hard hats. So we took something that was very masculine, representative of engineering. We made it bright pink. Um, (laughs) Very intentional. Um, You know, and people say, oh, no, but, you know, pink is, why why did you have to make it pink? Not all girls love pink. But I can guarantee you that a bright pink hard hat goes a long way to changing the masculine stereotype Mm -hmm. of engineering. And these girls decorate it in their personality type. And um, the other day, my sister said, you know, my niece went to go and choose out birthday presents for her cousins. And she then got a present for herself because, you know, it's everybody's birthday. <laughs> um, and she chose a Bob the Builder. And so my sister took a picture with the, the Bob the Builder outfit on. And um, she said, see, Nadia, you know, this is what you've done. And I was like, that's fantastic. Wow. Um, so so the, the impact, you, you guys are seeing this impact not only with your first graduate, yeah. but even your niece. Yes. Uh, <laughs> just a mere action of, let's say, Bob the Builder. It's really changing mindsets. Uh, maybe she's already planning an aid subconsciously. I'm going to become an engineer, and I'm going to be better than my aunt. <laughs> yes, no, definitely. And I hope that Nick, and I think that's our duty as our generation, just to make sure we raise the generation better than us. Awesome. Now that you mentioned start the business first and then MPL, mm-hmm. did you start Humeng as an MPL first, and is it the business now? Yes, so we did it the other way around. So we started the nonprofit, and then we we became a business. And why I say start the business first is um, right now in the industry, there's a lot of donor fatigue. So people are tired of giving money, right? But if you came, and, and also big, I, I, I was a professional beggar for large sums of money for, for, for eight years. Um, and I can tell you it's such an exhausting process because there's so much strings attached. And people give you peanuts and expect 
the world. Whereas if you go in with a really compelling business case on why you're doing what you're doing, people are more ready to give you work. They're ready to take you seriously. And you start taking yourself seriously and you move away from this kind of handout mentality to actually, um, even as a social enterprise, you know, you're doing good for the community and somebody should pay for that. Um, and there's a business service to that. So how did you switch? What made you like switch over? You just got up one one morning and said, "Okay, we have a business model here." So what actually the switch was really, and what pushed us was the financial crisis, right? So um, we've had, and I mean, in the engineering industry, it's gone through a really tough time. So mining is down, and one of our, our key mining partners disinvested from South Africa. Um, petrochemical industry, oil and gas, you know, when everybody's got cheap oil prices, it means that the oil companies are cutting on nice projects, which included ours. So we were down a mining partner, an oil and gas partner, and construction partner, and, and, and. Um, and so we were just like, look, we're not going to survive as an NPO um, because we mostly had corporate partnerships. And we said, okay, well, what's the business model? What is, some, what is it that people are going to buy from us? What's the service that we can offer based on our experience? And so out of the, the I call it the phoenix, right? It's out of these ashes, um, almost, this phoenix rose that really looks at um, how do we move the needle on gender parity, so a lot of companies, a lot of industries are struggling to be able to get their numbers right. Um, and so we actually help companies get their numbers right around um, gender diversity. When do you know when, do you know when to give up? Because <laughs> there's so many things you do, and, and I'm sure successful people give up. They know when yeah. to give up. So can you give an example of a project or venture where you started but then thought, okay, it's time. Let's call it a day. <laughs> so my, I guess my failure story, and I wait so proudly, is, um, you know, uh, as a Muslim woman, it's really difficult to find really nice clothes here in South Africa. So I started a fashion company, um, and I loved the process. I was designing. I was so creative. I loved fabric shopping. Whenever I used to travel anywhere around the world, I'd buy fabric. Um, and I wanted to have it locally manufactured because we've got such a beautiful skill of, of sewing um, in South Africa, especially in Cape Town, and we're losing it because the, the younger generation don't want to make those beautiful dresses. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of Chinese imports. And um, and so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to start a fashion company um, for modest fashion, and it's going to be amazing because everybody always comments about how beautiful my clothes are. So, of mm. course, they're going to mm. buy my clothes. Um, and I heavily invested personal funds. I didn't. It, luckily, it was, you know, a lot of my own money. And I had all the clothes designed, manufactured. Um, it was beautiful. I did a fashion show. It was very glitzy. Um, and then everybody liked my page on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And only my family bought my clothes. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it was out of pity, not because. <laughs> um, and I had pop-up store after pop-up store after pop-up store. And then I thought, actually, I'm just wasting my time. And so now I've got a wardrobe full of the most beautiful evening dresses. Um, on the bright side. On the bright side. So, I mean, I'm never short of a... a, a I'm actually now short of functions, not uh, outfits. Um, so if anybody wants to invite me to, you know, a wedding, whatever, yeah. um, I've got a perfect outfit for it. But, I mean, I it was a heavy loss. And it was really hard for me because failure wasn't something that I, I took lightly, um, you know, especially when you're used to flying high all the time. And it was something that I just had to accept. And I was like, how much more money am I going to sink into this venture? I was like, um, 
no, you know, I've got to pull the plug. Um, and now in hindsight, I mean, I think I was too early on the market. My price points were wrong. I didn't understand. I didn't do my proper market research before I went in. And and, I, and the biggest lesson is likes on Facebook does not translate to cash flow. That's a very interesting story. Thanks, thanks for sharing yeah. that. Has failure made you stronger or in this a- aspect? How did that failure translate into a success or pushing you more in your other adventures? And I mean, I think it, the failure comes, it brings resilience, right? So, you know, when you know what rock bottoms look, looks like and you know what, you know, heavy loss, the financial loss looks like. Um, and, and the thing is, is that honestly with money, you can always make money. It's not, money comes, money goes. That's what my husband always says. But um, what it did teach me was to actually really, before I go and do something, um, you know, really think through it. Um, and now even with our business, with our other business ventures, really think through what is it that's my value proposition? What is my product? What am I selling? Who are my customers? Who, and are they willing to buy at the price that I'm selling at? And and making sure that I that I really think through any venture um, that I invest in now. Um, and I do my homework. So when I started investing in the restaurant, um, you know, we bought a restaurant over and we, we made it a Turkish restaurant, bought a little French restaurant. Um, when I went to an investor about it, I had all my numbers. So before he even asked the question, I had spreadsheets out. I did a presentation. Um, and then, you know, I had an answer for every question. And I could honestly say I didn't have that for my first business. When I was younger, I was in the Scouts. And the motto of the Scouts is be prepared. <laughs> and what you just described was about being prepared. Mm-hmm. So it's this preparedness that gives you the confidence to pursue your goals as well. Uh, that's what it sounds like, at least. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. I've seen you, uh, um, I've seen a couple of YouTube videos where you answered, where you answer questions at the World Economic Forum. And I must say, it, you're extremely uh, good at articulating yourself, very compelling. Does that come with practice? Or I know you said you talk too much. Because <laughs> I was trying to pick my, picture myself there, you know, answering those tough questions. Yeah. How do you do it? Um, so you've got to be honest, right? So um, especially at those levels when you get to senior leadership, right, you've got to be authentic um, and honest about your responses because that gives you the confidence, you, you know, because it comes from a place of sincerity. Um, and what happens sometimes at those particular levels when you're busy with discussing st- you know, stuff with world leaders and that sometimes we tend to get kind of really shell-shocked or very shy or we turn into some crazy paparazzi mode that everybody wants to take a selfie with world leaders, you know, and so we, we stop engaging them as human beings, right? And almost as a responsibility for, for our generation is that we have to have these tough conversations and answer these questions and ask really hard questions as well um, and put our own thought leadership out there because otherwise the narrative is always going to be from essentially a very old white group of people Um, and it's our when you get a seat at the table um, you've got to use it you've got to put up your hand you've got to answer questions you've got to take responsibility because being at those forums is a responsibility um, that very 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 few people will have in their lifetime and so with all of that on my shoulders, I go there and I make it count. 
because uh, there's no use me going there and just, you know. I mean, I, I did take a selfie with Justin Trudeau because I think he's cool. But, uh, yeah, but and I got a, I got him to wear one of our pink hard hats as well because he's just such a great gender activist. Um, and a few other people as well. But I mean, you know, um, I usually put my, my cell phone away and I really engage with people because they can we can share an opinion. And then I'm not just some adoring fan, but I'm actually somebody who they can engage with on a human level. So part of what we're trying to do here at uh, AccidentalMuslims.com is um, we want to create almost a reservoir of a reservoir where, where say, matriculants or prospective um, engineers or whatever profession can turn to, uh, let's say, captains of industry, so mm-hmm. to speak, people that's excelling. What was most exciting about studying engineering and what, uh, why would you recommend engineering as a career. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm going to be very honest. I got into engineering by complete accident. I was going to be a lawyer, say here. Mm. <laughs> uh, that was because I, I used to talk a lot. Well, I still talk a lot. <laughs> but I also had a problem when I was little with stretching the truth. Um, <laughs> Not all lawyers stretch the truth. I'm going to just get that's a myth. Everybody, that is a myth. But please carry on. Um, <laughs> so, so, so you accidentally stumbled into I engineering. Exactly. Really, I'm an accidental engineer. Okay. Um, and um, actually, most engineers, most women engineers get into engineering one of three ways. Um, the first way is like a dad or a brother or, or an uncle is an engineer. The second one, someone said, you know, you were good. You loved maths and science. And so you must go and be an engineer. And the third one is sheer dumb luck. And I'm just like in the mm-hmm. sheer dumb luck category. Mm-hmm. Um but when I got in there, so I was going to be a lawyer, and my mom said, no, 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 you're going to be wasting your talent. She doesn't even remember this conversation. And I thought, oh, well, well I, if, since I was, like, little, since I was, like, five years old, I was going to be a lawyer. Um, but then, because I was always, you know, standing up for, for rights, especially women's rights. Like, Daddy, why must only the girls wash the dishes? The boys <laughs> must also wash dishes, you know. So the, I was the activist, the, the, you know, the human rights defender. Um, and then when I... My mom said, no, you know, you should try something else. I thought, okay, well, what do I like at high school? And I really loved geography. I thought, you know, um, just where the world was and how the world was made and tectonic plates was really awesome. Um, And so I wanted to study rocks. Um, (laughs) And my mother said, no, you can't study rocks. You'll be down in the mine and it's not safe. Um, And so I went on to Google, actually, and I found something called geotechnical engineering. So I was like, must love rock, must love rocks and you know um, <laughs> is okay at maths and science <laughs> good at problem solving um activist wants to change the world um and kind of geotechnical engineering came up i'd never heard of it before and i applied to uct one university one choice um, and it was in the department of civil engineering and the irony is is that in I finally got to do geotechnical engineering my third year of, of varsity, and I hated it. I absolutely hated it. But I really loved the. What people don't tell you is civil engineering actually comes from the word civilian, um, and it's all about creating services for people. And I, I often talk about engineers being kind of the superheroes of society because we provide services that would otherwise, um, you know, cripple um, society. So clean drinking water, public transport, um, roads and infrastructure. So we connect everybody. We build the cities. We design the cities. Some design it better than others. Um, and so I thought, well, that's really cool is that you get to help so many people at at the same time. Uh, and they don't even know it. So, you know, 
people who are waking up in the morning and have the ability to have clean water without disease in it. That's because the civil engineer made that happen. And I thought that's cool. So that's the most interesting thing that, um, and the complexity is that, you know, there's never a right answer. How to design a city for people. There's like, mm. everybody has a different opinion. Um, that's what I think is the most interesting um, thing th- uh, about studying engineering. That, and that you, you actually get to play. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and, and you both make a structures. I mean, I've been involved in uh, Athlone Stadium, the, um, the airport parkade. There's like a ramp there, actually, that I designed. But I'll, if it falls down, <laughs> no, no, if it falls down, it wasn't me, and I'll be in Tahiti because oh, <laughs> okay, okay. there's no extradition to South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's quite refreshing to hear uh, an engineer say creating services for people to benefit. Uh, and I think that's something which uh, I think no matter which profession you're in or which, mm-hmm. which um, uh, NPO in, it's about serving people, yeah. servitude to others. Um, how has your your, your, let's say your religion, your Islam, your faith impacted on your work ethic and um, and uh, have you grown closer to, to Allah SWT in the process or is there any sort of connection that you find from work to, to faith? I think that's a big connection. I mean honestly I wouldn't have gotten through my f- my whole engineering degree without a lot of du'a. I'm just going to put it out mm. there that du'a and a friend named Marlon <laughs> got me through <laughs> two years of maths. <laughs> There's some heavy, heavy prayers that just, you know, and but, you know, in all seriousness, um, I think Allah Ta'ala puts out a path for you. Um, and, and sometimes you actually have absolutely no control over that path. And it surprises you in many ways. Um, and, and I'll give you a, the most recent example. I was uh, invited to go to a conference in Saudi. Um, I nearly didn't get my visa. Um, they literally got a, a Saudi visa and one day it was stuck in Joburg. There were floods. But I was going to Dubai for another meeting, and I put it out on Facebook. Guys, anybody who's going from Joburg to Dubai. Um, and somebody said, actually, I'm going <laughs> from Joburg to Dubai. So it was really random. I get my Saudi visa, um, go to Saudi after my conference in Dubai, and um, I'm, in, I'm in Riyadh. And something says to me, go for Umrah. And I said to my, I, I, I text my mom, and I said, mom, I'm, I, I don't, can, can a single woman, I mean, uh, without a mahram, go on an umrah? And she says, no, unless you're a group of women. And I find a group of women <laughs> who are all going to, uh, and they were global shapers with the World Economic Forum that organized this trip, and they are absolutely amazing from the Riyadh and the Jeddah hubs. And so they say, okay, well, we've got, we've got a group going. And I said, that's fantastic, but now I've got to move my flight. I mean, I've, you know, there was, it was a bit of an issue trying to move a, a flight to fly back to Dubai out of, you know, Jeddah instead of Riyadh. And, and the conference organizers, was, they were telling everybody, no, we're not changing anybody's flight. And they changed my flight and they covered its cost. And I got to make an Umrah last week. Yeah, and it was, it was just and every single time, you know, when you, you're down on your musallah and you, you ask for something, it just guides you. And so it's not sometimes in your hands. Um, and so for me, it's a privilege to serve. And everybody asks, you know, the, they'll always ask in, in interviews, who's your role model? Um, and I said, you know, um, for me, my favorite role model is uh, Sayyidina Hadija. And I aspire to be like her every day. And the reason being was 
at the time, I mean, she was one of the most formidable businesswomen of her time. She's doing, she was doing then what women now are calling new age. I mean, she was, she was 45. She married somebody who was younger, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) She was married before she traded. He worked for her. She broke every stereotype that, you know, today we're still trying to break. Um, And she was just so amazing. And I said to somebody, I said, Muslim women come from the stock and somehow we, we've lost our, the, the amazingness that she had um, and we're born out of this. Um, and so my faith really um, reassures me that uh, for me, Islam is a feminist religion and everybody looks at me and goes, how can you say that? And I'm say, I say that because the, the position that women have in Islam, if you actually knew your religion, um, you'd be like, everybody would want to be, every woman would want to be a Muslim woman um, around the world because of the true understanding of what the religion provides for us. That's phenomenal, uh, what you just described there. And, and it makes me think about uh, how do we change a stereotype? I know we touched on it earlier, um, because I have the same understanding of how women should be, uh, or how Islam treats women and should, but it's it's so skewed out there. I, I know sensationalist media, etc., etc. but how much of that responsibility rests on us as Muslims itself? No, we've got a huge responsibility. I mean, um, I, I was at the World Economic Forum in Davos this year, and I was invited to speak on a panel on understanding Islam. And I said, really, this you, you want me to? So I said, look, I'm not qualified to sit on this panel. I really don't understand. I'm not a mufti. I'm not mm. a sheikh. I'm just, mm. I'm just Nadia. And they were like, I said, well, maybe you want to call it like understanding Muslims. Or like, <laughs> I, I don't, like, it was such a heavy title to hold. And um, they said, well, it's, uh, it's a closed session. Um, you know, uh, Chatham House rules. And so you can't talk about it afterwards. And I said, well, why? And then they're like, no, so people could talk freely about it. And I said, actually, this, and I said it in the session, I said, this should be televised. And I was sitting at the table with um, Vice President of the US, Joe Biden's wife was at the table. And I asked her, well, what are you doing here? And she said, no, she just wants to understand Muslim people better. Um, And I said, well, it's our responsibility to actually counteract that negative narrative that the media portrays as women as being, yes, there are lots of women, especially in uh, Muslim countries that are oppressed, but there are also lots of women in non-Muslim countries that are oppressed. Um, and it's for, for me, it's to be able to showcase that that's really important. And one of the princes from Saudi was also on the panel, and um, he was saying exactly the same thing. He said, why is the doors closed? Why isn't this on a main session so that everybody can understand that actually, you know, Muslims are not crazy gun-wielding maniacs. Um, I always see that that post that, you know, there's a billion of us. If we wanted you dead, you'd be dead by now, right? Um, but, you know, it's it's a responsibility for us to, to showcase that Islam is actually, we need to set the example. And sometimes we are actually the worst examples. And and it doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be at the World Economic Forum. It can be just in our community, you know, embodying the principles of um, being good to your neighbors, whether they are Muslim or not. We're so judgmental um, in in our community. That's not, you know, that's not part of being what a Muslim is supposed to be. We're not supposed to judge other people. Um, we're just supposed to actually live and let love. Um, and, and through that way, it's the kind of the, it's not the hard dawah cell, right? It's the soft way of saying actually... Um, I'm a lot of the time the first Muslim person that lots of my friends, I lived in Germany for a year, I was the first Muslim person people had met. And they asked me lots of questions. And I said, please ask me questions. 
um, you know, in my engineering class, I was the first Muslim pe- person that a lot of the guys met. And the one guy asked me the one day, he said, why do you wear a scarf? Um, and then I joked and I said, because I don't have any ears and my hair is green. <laughs> and he was like, what? And I was like, no, 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 I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> then we get to ask you to funny, eh? <laughs> um, I mean, that joke stuck with me until like fourth year when, you know, they, they, used, they remembered that. But I, I took them to a process of like why Muslim women dress yeah. a particular way, why we eat a particular way, why we don't drink alcohol. And it made a lot of sense. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's the dawah of going, you know, from village to village, knocking on people's doors saying, you know, please accept Islam. And there's the dawah of actually just sitting next to somebody having a conversation. So, Nada, you, you travel the world. So, I have two questions. One, are you keeping track of how many countries? And two, what's your, what's your favorite city? Um, Am I keeping to Facebook? Because I check in everywhere. Okay. <laughs> so, I've got, um, so I've got quite a nice, this, this really nice app on Facebook. Nice yes, okay. uh, that would tell me where I've been. Um, and then my favorite city in the world, and this is really biased, but um, is Istanbul. Uh, but hands down, I mean, I've, I've been to a lot of places, but there's very few places that come close to Istanbul. Uh, there's just some magic in that city. It's... East meets west. The food's amazing. The people are amazing. The fresh orange juice. The it's just um, <laughs> the shopping. Ah, oh, the shopping. And I mean, if if it, there was a little bit more stability in in the country, I mean, Turkey's just gone down a spiral that is very very sad to watch. Um, my husband is Turkish, so I clearly love the people there as well. <laughs> and we started a Turkish restaurant, and you know, um, also especially for Kurdish people because. Um, he's ethnically Kurdish. You know, it's it's really difficult. But the warmth that I experienced there, especially the my with my in-laws, the Kurdish people, I don't speak their language, but I felt more love um, and being welcomed in into their home than I do in some of my own family's home. Wow. Um, and that's that's just the way they are. They will give their they will welcome. They called musafir. You were Musafir for three days. They will give you everything. You'll say, oh, I like that shirt. Such a nice shirt. And then they'll give you the shirt. Um, and it's just that kind of true culture. It's, it's very simplistic. They don't judge you. They don't. And all they want you to do is eat. They want you to sit and eat. So, you know, if you ever find yourself in Turkey, find a Kurdish family because they're going to feed you mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're hungry. <laughs> but that uh, Musafir culture, it stems from Sunnah as well. Yes. And, and, and that links to what you said earlier about embodying the Islamic message through your character, through your actions. Yeah. And so I would like to meet your in-laws one day. <laughs> <laughs> I should uh, give me the address when I, when I go to Istanbul. Or wherever, well, they, like they're Turkey. in Urfa. In Urfa, okay. Yeah, which is... Is it the rural part of Turkey? Or? Um, so actually, and the thing is, we don't even know our own Islamic history. So Urfa is, or Shanlufa is the eastern part of Turkey. So a lot of the Kurds stay on the east. Yeah. And this is the birthplace of Nabi Ibrahim. I didn't know this, honestly. And there's a cave that people go to uh, where he was reputed to have been born. And I had my nikah at the mosque next to the cave, which was so special. Um, And they have this lake where there's a story where Nabi Ibrahim was surrounded. And they were throwing water bombs. um, uh, And he he prayed to Allah Ta'ala and he asked Allah Ta'ala to please help him. And the fire became water and the coal became fish. 
Um, and so there's all these fish there, and they're sacred fish. Mm-hmm. So you can't eat them. And if apparently if you see a white fish, all your du'as will be answered. Uh, okay. I'm still looking for the white fish. <laughs> um, but i got a husband, so I guess you know. <laughs> yeah. So definitely, if you're in the area, they will take you in. They will treat you like their own. And if you like their shirt, they'll give it to you. So, again, I'm repeating this, and I'll probably repeat it in every episode. I'll probably get bored of it. But the purpose of AccidentalMuslim.com, again, is to to find these stories that you, you were men- mentioning earlier that uh, say Khadija was your, your hero, your mentor, your role model. But what we're trying to do is find those role models within our communities. And, and from what I'm hearing so far, uh, Nadia, you, you fit that bill. You, you, you're well-traveled. You, you, you've had failures. You've had ups. You've had downs. Um, if I can put this question to you, you are 19 years old and you're about to go approach that first networking session. Uh, I think it was from Vodacom, you said. Um, <laughs> anything different you'd do? Any regrets when you look back at life? No, and the reason being is that I always think that all the things that happened to me shape me uh, to the person that I am today. So if I had it easier, I may have been a lazier person now. Um, I think the struggle breeds resilience. Sometimes I think that if it's we have, if we're always succeeding, right? We don't know what failure is. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't make you hard. It doesn't give you the resolve. Mm-hmm that you need to actually get through it. Um, so 19-year-old me, I mean, I, I wish sometimes I was as young and naive, 19-year-old, who could just walk up to somebody and and hand their really badly made business card <laughs> <laughs> and tell them to call my people. But <laughs> um, and I think, you know, I'd, I'd, I, I think for, for a lot of young people, I'd, really encourage that, you know, taking that leap and um, having the confidence to do so. And I think that's what's sometimes lacking with our people. Um, and I always try and help young people as much as possible, especially like if they, they, they're applying for a job and they're doing an interview. And I always say, I, I take the time to give them really good feedback. And the reason being is, is that nobody takes that time. Nobody's mentoring them. Nobody's helping them through that process. And I see their CVs when they apply for jobs. And I'm just like, you could be great. But you've just represented yourself so badly <laughs> on paper. And all I have to go on is this piece of paper. So and this is a weird thing to say, but I always say embody your inner white guy when you're going to write. Because white guys, you know, they, they, they barely know anything, but they walk into a room with swagger <laughs> and they just talk like they're the expert on, the fee- on, on whatever. They don't even know what they're talking about. Like the other day, a white guy was explaining to me about being pregnant. And I said... <laughs> We call it mansplaining. No, there's actually a term for it. And he was telling me the whole process that, um, you know, that, you, that you're going to be going through and, and uh, how difficult it is and that. And I said, no, no, thank you. So, like, um, when did was, was your last child? <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. So, embody your inner white guy when um, you're about to write something about yourself. Think about yourself as the best possible version of yourself. Don't think about the shortcomings. We all have shortcomings, right? But when you're going to put yourself, you put yourself on paper, just think about that. Always exceed expectations. I yes. think that's what you said, eh? <laughs> okay, I'll exceed my expectations. Because uh, Khalil's always telling me, you know, the law of diminishing intent. Mm-hmm. Um, if the longer you take to do something, the more likely you're not going to do it. I think that's more what Khalil will do. It. Yeah. 100%. Um, <laughs> what, are you, what are you most grateful for? I'm most grateful for... 
um, my family. Um, I I was just telling my mom the other day. So um, I'm seven months pregnant, no, almost eight months pregnant, and um, and I I I now completely understand what a mother goes through mm-hmm. um, to bring a child into this world. And uh, when I was in Umrah, I did a walk. I I walked everywhere. And I said mm-hmm. I was going to do um, the Safa and Marwa. I was going to walk, and everybody said, "No, take the wheelchair." And I mm-hmm. said, "No, I'm going to walk it because." What mothers go through every day for their children, the sacrifices that they make, I think sometimes we forget. And so my mother, my father, my siblings, um, my husband, my business partner, you know, um, him and I, we, I, I did say we soulmates, we like sisters. My, you know, so I think, um, and I thank Allah Ta'ala, and when I was on Umrah, I thanked Allah Ta'ala for giving me good parents because a lot of the time, um, and, and the research is showing now that um, how you're molded, um, the, the choices that you make, especially for girls, is if they have a supportive dad. My dad's just encouraging. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll come with a scatterbrain idea, which I did, many scatterbrain ideas, and he said, of course. And he invested in these scatterbrain ideas. <laughs> still owe him a lot of money, but <laughs> um, you know, yeah. it's it's that sheer belief that your daughter, you know, all dads say, "Oh, of course you can go and do it." But my my daddy's like, "Okay, of course you're going to do it, and I'm going to help you do it to the best of your ability." And when you fail, we're going to have a conversation about it. But you know, um, it's that kind of support structure. And my 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 siblings keep me grounded. Uh, my brother steals all my jokes. So he sounds, he's actually, everybody thinks he's the funny one in the family, but actually it's me. Um, and then my husband, who's just like, he, there's no expectations from him. And we just don't have the roles, uh, the gender roles that are entrenched in our community, that he, there's this role of a wife and what a wife is supposed to do. He doesn't expect any of that. Um, he just expects me to be me and him to be him. And together we just kind of weirdly do, you know, we jowl. Um and that's I think awesome. that's, we take family for granted and they such a pivotal role in our lives. We wish you all the best um, for, for your third venture. You're your, your superhero, your leader. You're going to be, inshallah, a great mom, inshallah. great wife. Thanks, thanks for coming. Oh, thank you very, very much. And, you know, just for all the kids that are going out there, and I think that's the one thing that I want to leave young people with is like, they live in a very high-paced society right now where everything is instantaneous um, and there's a lot of pressure. I don't want to be 16, really, because the pressures of a 16-year-old today. And just don't take yourself that seriously. Um, you don't need to have all the answers. You should figure it out on the, along the way. Um, mm. and, and take time to actually be a child. You're only a kid once. So go dance in the rain and, and find a puddle to jump in um, mm-hmm. and just be a child. Awesome. Before I close, uh, and I thank you for that input because I think it's quite relevant. I walk into your restaurant. What are you going to recommend for me to eat? <laughs> <laughs> the Kurdish kavurma. Oh. Repeat that. Sorry? It's the Kurdish kavurma. It's. Um, I mean, we, we do a lot of what meats. What is it? Um, so it's meat um, cooked with chili and peppers and tomato served with rice and bread. Because uh, Turks love their carbs. Um, <laughs> Really good meal. Yeah. <laughs> Very tasty. I see a couple of your in functions going towards a taste. Which means palace. Oh, lovely. Uh, Nadia, uh, from us, we just say all the best to you. We say shukran for your time. Uh, we know it's late and uh, you made yourself available 
for the interview. Um, please, uh, we, we will make to offer Allah SWT to protect you, your family, your baby to be, inshallah, boy or girl. It's a little boy. Alhamdulillah. Allah must protect you and give you the strength and put barak in all your adventures. Uh, your ventures, sorry. <laughs> and uh, yeah, keep us in mind and we will definitely like your Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So that's it for today's show. We hope you added value. We hope you enjoyed it. But most of all, we hope our guests inspired you to live with purpose. Don't forget to send us your suggestions via info at accidentalmuslims.com. If you know anybody out there that is inspiring, that's leading, that's living with purpose, please uh, do contact us. And remember, feedback is our oxygen. So follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I hope you enjoyed. God bless. Assalamu alaikum.